Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for August 29th, 2017. On today's show in the water cooler, I'll be talking about Magic Castle again because why not? And give first impressions on Marvel's The Defenders. Ben will be talking about seeing La La Land on a rooftop in Los Angeles. Uh, in the news, we'll be talking about the early buzz from Stephen King's It, the death of filmmaker Toby Hooper, casting changes on Hellboy, and how the new Star Wars comic connects Luke Skywalker with Rogue One. And in our feature presentation, Y Tran Bui will talk about her visit to Pixar to learn about their new film, Coco. But with me now is Ben Pearson. Hey, how's it going? Good. What have you been up to this weekend? So I went to see La La Land. Uh, it's part of the Rooftop Cinema Club here in Los Angeles. I think they have it in London, L.A., and New York right now. It's uh, it's pretty cool. It's at the Montalban Theater um, on Vine Avenue, right in the sort of the heart of Hollywood, really. And uh, yeah, La La Land, they have a bunch of different screenings. They have like The Godfather and all sorts of stuff. It's sort of similar to the... Um, Street the, food cinema and stuff. Yes, exactly. Yeah, but it seems like seeing La La Land on a Los Angeles rooftop is just like perfect. Yeah, and that's exactly why we chose to do it. I actually had only seen the movie once in theaters, you know, last year when it was when it first came out, and I had been looking for an opportunity to revisit it. And then when I saw that it was playing on a, a rooftop in the middle of Hollywood, I was like, oh yeah, that's excellent. So uh, my wife and I went and checked that out. And I still really like this movie. It's great. I know it's it's sort of became divisive around Oscar time, but I think especially with um, that conversation uh, fading and Moonlight sort of taking its rightful uh, place, I, I think now people will be able to judge um, La La Land on its own terms. And as a movie, I still just really love what Damien Chazelle did with that film. And yeah, it was pretty amazing uh, just to you know watch the film you know, a couple blocks away from a lot of the scene, a lot of the places where they shot it. So, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. 
I have to see that again. I haven't seen it since it came out. Um, I didn't rewatch it during Oscar time, uh, but I, I have it on uh, iTunes, so I'm going to have to check that out. Um, on Friday night, I went back to the Magic Castle. I'm not a member yet, but I got invited by a magician to uh, go back to the castle and see some shows. So I just wanted to mention briefly that I went back there. I saw uh, a bunch of acts, including uh, – uh, Chef Anton, who is this guy that he's been on Fool Us, and he's more of like um one of those crazy like they can do trick shots on a pool table kind of guys. But okay. he, he does he he does like this uh prediction trick out of it, and it was actually kind of cool because they he was videotaping himself for an audition tape for America's Got Talent next next year. So uh if he gets in, I saw the audition. Interesting. Uh, yeah, interesting. Uh, and um, Johnny Thompson, who is this? I mean, he is a, a classic magician. He has uh, consulted for all the big magic acts, uh, including Penn and Teller. Um, and it was great to finally see him in person. And he does this act with just, um, for the most part, uh, cups and balls. You know, an act that everybody's seen before, but he does it like. Four different ways, and it's incredible. I saw Michael Lamar again, and he picked me. I'm not sure if he recognized me or, or anything. I, I doubt it. But he picked me to uh, do the rubber band trick with. So I held the rubber band for him, and he gave me the rubber bands at the end of the show, uh, which is super cool, a super uh, cool end cap to the story last week. And um, I also saw John Armstrong, who's my friend. Uh, you, you might have seen him do the the tiny plunger uh trick on a bunch of different shows that couldn't fool us and he is amazing and uh, he, he did his act with this guy named bob gerbert who does the act as a hollywood executive like kind of like a um hollywood executive that you hate that okay. just uh, that just wants to make crap to make money and yeah. he does the whole thing like has the audience predict the next blockbuster that can make money and it, it, it it's and it does like a book test with a, a screenplay and um it was just really good it was a a really cool act a really good night uh Seth Rogen was there with um a party bus full of his friends i don't know what they were there for but <laughs> i saw a couple shows with Seth Rogen not that he knew i was there uh he was he was in full uh sometimes when you see celebrities in LA and you try to even if you know them you say like hey Seth uh, th- they could be in like the full like mode where they have the blinders up like they don't want to be bothered by fans oh, yeah. uh, and they kind of like pretend not to hear uh, and I think he, yeah. was, he was in that uh, kind of mode at, uh, I've seen the, like uh, like Kevin Bacon at the grocery store and he acts like that too you know I, I don't blame him like you're out in public and and yeah you don't want to be hounded all the time yeah and I, I, I and, um, and, uh, John Armstrong introduced me to Jim Lee, the comic book artist who uh, drew much of the comics that from my childhood, him and Rob Liefeld. And yeah. I got to geek out with him and we follow each other on Twitter and it was great to finally meet him. Uh, but enough of the name dropping. Uh, I want to talk about The Defenders, uh, the Marvel TV show. Have you watched any of this yet? No, I have not. Uh, are you watching a- any of the Marvel Netflix nope, shows? Not no, not me. Yeah, you only pick the good stuff, right? Like you. <laughs> I mean, I just I've heard so many mixed things about it. Like, uh, I heard Daredevil season two was pretty good, but and like Jessica Jones is supposed to be pretty good, but all the other ones, it's sort of like take it or leave it is the the gist I get from the general 
um, you yeah. know, the general crowds. And it's like, ah, I don't know if I want to commit, you know, however many hours. And, so, and like there's the big thing with Netflix about a lot of their shows being too long and just being padded out to hit the numbers. And I just, uh, yeah, I'm sort of like, unless I hear good things from people that I trust, I'm not going to dive into something like well, that. I would definitely recommend the two seasons of, of Daredevil and maybe Jessica Jones. Uh, the Defenders, I'm five episodes in, and I got to tell you, you, you hit it right on the money when you said it was padded too long. Uh, it took them like three episodes to get to the fun part, which is where you see the heroes from the, these different series interact with each other. Oh, and, man. Um, but once that happens, it's actually a lot of fun. So it takes a, a couple episodes to get to that point. Uh, the first two episodes were not so great. Uh, the villains of the season, uh, Sigourney Weaver is the, the main villain, but it's kind of the hand, which mm-hmm. is kind of like this, uh, samurai like the foot clan. Yeah. 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 And it, it's, it's kind of uninteresting. So, um, but I, I do like the interaction, uh, Jessica Jones kind of sarcastic, like insulting, you know, the other members of the group, D- D- Daredevil trying to keep, you know, his secret identity amongst these other superheroes uh i'm interested to see where it goes it's gotten to a fun point the last couple episodes have been kind of fun i know we have a review on the site that called it disappointing um and i i I definitely see problems i see cracks (laughs) but uh i'll report back after i see the whole series i think it's 10 or 12 or 13 episodes something like that um yeah so uh so with that review that's it doesn't sound like any anything you'd want to see uh no probably not <laughs> <laughs> of course uh uh last week we talked about our picks for the joker i just wanted to mention because we we asked people for their feedback what they what listeners would like to who they would like to see as the joker and i uh, just wanted to mention a couple of the better responses colin singh or sign i don't know sing uh suggested charlie hunnam uh what do you think of that yeah, that's um, Charlie. Charlie Hunnam has always been one of those guys that I've found to be um, very bland and sort of like a boring personality. But I think if you give, if you put him into a character as manic and as interesting as the Joker, maybe that could be the thing that sort of takes him to the next level as an actor. Because I, I, I've seen him, and have you ever seen Green Street Hooligans, the movie from like 2005 that Lexi Alexander directed? I did see it probably in 2005. I didn't yeah. even remember he was in it. Yeah, he's like one of the main characters. It's him and Elijah Wood are like the main characters in that. And that's where I first saw him. And I was like, oh, this guy's great. And then I haven't really liked him in almost anything else I've seen him in. I also haven't seen Lost City of Z yet. But um but yeah, I think that that's definitely an interesting suggestion because that might sort of um, force him to uh, <laughs> step it up or, or force it at least be interesting, you know? See, you're a bit more optimistic than me. I haven't seen Lost City of Z. I've heard great things about him in that. But everything I've seen of him, he's been just dull and uh, the the worst part of the movie for me. Yeah. So uh, not, not on my list. Uh, Mike F. from Victoria, British Columbia, Canada says, quote, I think Jake Gyllenhaal could pull off with his range, transforming ability and intensity. Uh, think about Nightcrawler. Uh, I also think that Ben Foster could trim back down. He he would be amazing in the role as he is such a great character actor. Th- both of those choices 
we're on our initial wish list, uh, which mm-hmm. we, uh, I'm not sure if anybody knows, but we're in a Slack channel with the, the whole Slash Film writing team. And when we put together like one of these lists, we throw out all these like names and we narrow it down to, I think this time it was like 14 names, mm-hmm. but these two didn't make the cut. I think, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal just didn't make the cut because if this is going to be a Joker origin story and he's a young Joker, Gyllenhaal is, I think, not so young. Right. Yeah. But I'm not sure why Ben Foster didn't make the cut. Yeah, I think he's also like um, uh, surprisingly old for, you know, he, he always plays characters that tend to uh, seem younger than he is. But I think he's probably not quite age appropriate either for a young Joker. But uh, but yeah, young Ben Foster, like, I don't know, um, uh, 310 to Yuma era Ben Foster would have been a cool choice. Yeah, I know Jack Drew is really pushing for Ben Foster. He's a huge Ben Foster fan. Uh, let's just jump into the news. Uh, Stephen King's It, the first reactions have hit the web. You got to see it this past weekend. Uh, how is it? It is uh, very good. It's very, very good. So Brad, uh, Ethan Anderton on the site, um, his headline for the early buzz article in which he rounds up a lot of uh, reactions and stuff is a terrifying movie with heart true to the spirit of the book. And for me, that's exactly uh, that's a perfect explanation of what this film is. I can't get too much into it because official reviews are still uh, embargoed for another week or two, uh, or I guess a, probably just a week from now. But um, but yeah, this movie, I, as somebody who's a big fan of the book, I read the book for the first time um, leading up to the release of the first trailer so I could be sort of like all caught up with it. And they split the book in half. Uh, the book follows adults and kids, and the uh, the movie just follows the kids. And it was a decision that I wasn't crazy about when I first heard about it. But yeah, because having... the book kind of flashes in between them, so you yeah, kind exactly. of get moments that like reflect upon each other, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's like those are those some of those moments you're talking about are some of my favorite parts of the book. But um, at, having seen the film, the casting is just like spot on perfect for just about every single uh, one of the Losers Club and Bill Skarsgård, who plays Pennywise, is <laughs> he is man. He's so good in this movie. It's like he, his voice is I'm still not sure how I feel about his voice in this film, but it is so alienating and bizarre that ultimately I think uh, it's a perfect fit for a character that is himself alienating and bizarre and just like super weird and ancient. And um, yeah, he, he does these things with his eyes and his uh, there are some great jump scares in this movie and scares that are, that are legitimately earned too, not just jump scares left and right. Um, But the, the movie is pretty long. It's like two hours and 14 minutes or something like that. And they uh, build on the relationship of the kids, so much that it feel they do the work basically they they pave um the way for a lot of these scares to feel earned and legitimate and you really get to know these kids and and their dynamic together feels like another Stephen King property like stand by me um you know the the camaraderie between them and uh all of that stuff is like ripped straight out of the book and it's a really really great adaptation they do make some changes from the book but they definitely keep the essence of it and um i tried to watch the uh 
1990 miniseries starring Tim Curry on TV the other night. I had never seen that as a kid. You had never seen it? I, I no. loved it as a kid. Yeah, and I think that's that's the um, reaction a lot of people have. As long as they see it when, you know, at a certain age, it's like terrifying for them. But watching it now, and especially like knowing that I was about to see this quote unquote real movie that that is about to come up. It looks so cheap and just sort of, um, it looks like a made for TV movie from 1990. It's super cheesy and not at all scary in the way that this movie is scary. And obviously they were like hampered by the fact that it was a prime time, uh, you know, that, that miniseries aired on ABC in 1990. So like they clearly couldn't do a lot of the R rated stuff that they can do in this movie. But, um, yeah, it's very scary. It's probably going to make Warner brothers a ton of money and, uh, deservedly. So it's, it's a very good movie. I hope so. I, I'm I'm excited to see it. I haven't gotten a screening invite yet, so I'll probably have to go see it with the masses. If I ever get my movie pass card, it hasn't come in the mail yet. Um, <laughs> But also in the news over the weekend, we learned that director Toby Hooper uh, passed away at age 74. Hooper is best known as an influential horror filmmaker. He directed the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1974 uh, and, um, you know, did, did some other stuff, including Poltergeist. There was that whole controversy of did Steven Spielberg direct that or mm-hmm. did he, he uh, you know, there, there, there's really not uh sizable answers to that to that mystery uh dj uh role that uh toby hooper did um but he he directed a, a bunch of stuff including a miniseries adaption of stephen king's salem's lot um did some tales from the crypt episodes amazing stories masters of horror um freddy's nightmares uh remember that tv show is horrible uh <laughs> and um i i, I uh you know i, I didn't have a uh huge love for toby hooper i mean i love i like texas chainsaw massacre just fine um but i'm not a huge horror guy do you you have a big uh yeah i'm i'm sort of in the same boat as you i'm not really a huge horror guy and i've only seen probably a handful of those movies that you mentioned so i still need to go through and and sort of um familiarize myself with a lot of his uh catalog but uh, I know he was like a major, major force in the horror world, and a lot of people um, took that loss pretty hard. And uh, it's easy to see why, just from you know Poltergeist and Texas Chainsaw, like th- the guy was clearly very talented. So um, yeah, if, yeah, if, if you I, haven't seen his films, his his presence and what he brought to the horror movie genre, it was felt in many, many other films. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's sad to see uh, another death. Another week, another death in in, in this film world. Mm-hmm. Um, also in the news, uh, last week we talked about Hellboy casting, which was uh, a little controversial. Uh, they had changed the ethnicity of a character from, I think, Japanese to white. Uh, and uh, we have some news on that front. Yes. So Ed Screen, who is the guy who is cast as Major Bend Daimo, I believe is how you pronounce his name, Daimyo, Uh in uh, Neil Marshall's Hellboy reboot has himself backed out of the movie. He will no longer be playing that character. Uh, He released a statement on Twitter where he 
basically said that he accepted the role because um, he wasn't aware that the character in the original comics was of mixed Asian heritage, and he uh, just couldn't go forward with it. He he says, um, it's clear that representing this character in a culturally accurate way holds significance for people, and that to neglect this responsibility would continue a worrying tendency to obscure ethnic minority stories and voices in the arts. I feel it's important to honor and respect that, Therefore, I've decided to step down so the role can be cast appropriately. So it's a really like yeah, a, I would love to clap for him right now. Yeah, exactly. Like there's this kind of thing doesn't really happen that much. I mean, almost never. Well, More, I, I, I asked in our, our Slack channel, I was like, has a whitewashing controversy ever changed the casting decision in a yeah, film? And I, I don't think, think it has. Um, more, more often than not, it's really like directors or even uh, the actors themselves sort of doubling down on the decision um, when they're confronted with it in a really like defensive way. Like even Ridley Scott, you know, did this with Exodus Gods and Kings, um, trying to justify it by saying like, oh, you know, uh, we couldn't make the movie if we did it with without, uh, you know, white um, name brand actors, essentially. Um, But this is a really cool move on Ed Screen's part. And he's an actor that like, Honestly, I don't really like him that much as an actor. But now, you know, seeing something like this, seeing him make this decision um, definitely uh, makes me want to take a second look at him and and actually pay attention to the projects that he does moving forward. Because, like I said, you just don't see this kind of thing happen. And it's very cool that he um, recognized the uproar that rightly came when he was cast in this role and said, you know what? I actually don't want to be a part of this instead of just doubling down like everybody else and making excuses for it. Um, he's clearing the way for, uh, you know, somebody of Asian descent to actually step into this role. And that's a really awesome thing. Yeah. It's a weird move too, because it's a, it's not a lead role. It's like a supporting character, right? And I think so. Yeah. And it's not like they were going to bring more people into theaters with, you know, his name, brand value. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, I mean, it's weird that they didn't just try to cast someone of Japanese heritage anyways. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's it's definitely great that he, he did that. And um, it sounds like production is now looking for a Japanese uh, actor to fill that role, which is win-win in the end. Totally. Um also in the news, a uh, new Star Wars comic that's coming out will give Luke Skywalker a significant connection to Rogue One. Uh, Ethan Anderton wrote the article for SlashFilm.com, but basically the gist is, and there, there's actually a couple cool things about this, is this new comic book, well, the Star Wars comics in general have been filling in the space between A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back. Not that we need that <laughs> gap of time <laughs> filled in, but uh, that's what they've been doing. And uh, so far they've really not dealt with Luke's relationship with the rebellion. It's been more of Luke discovering his Jedi ability abilities and evading the empire and stuff like that. So this one is going to deal more with his relationship with the rebellion. And, um, also, you know, uh, Leia is going to have to come to terms with some devastation that hits her on a personal level as well. Uh, the 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 writer of the uh, of the comic basically reveals that. Um, let me find the exact quote here. Uh, 
So we're kind of starting with a smaller story, explicitly integrating with the and exposing the New Hope characters to everything that happened in Rogue One. We're going to the post-apocalyptic wasteland that was left after the Empire blew a hole in Jeddah and removed one of the holiest sites there. There, that's great for all the characters. We're talking, we're taking Leia to a planet that was shot by the Death Star for a survivor of Alderaan. That's everything. Uh, then Luke is searching for spirituality of Jedi, and he's taken uh, to a big hole where the holiest site used to be. That's an enormous visual that expresses the problem that Luke is facing. Uh, what he's looking for isn't there anymore. Um, the interesting thing here is uh, Jeddah. I think we all assume that, like, you know, it's gone, and it is gone. The city, Jeddah city, is gone. Uh, the Death Star did blow it up, but according to this, I guess there is other uh, civilizations, set other settlements on this planet. And uh, even though the settlements are small and not as holy as Jeddah city, we're going to get to see them. And uh, for Rogue One, that was one of the locations I was disappointed that we didn't get to see more of. So it's going to be interesting to see more of that, and also. Uh, the Empire took all the kyber crystals from that planet, but uh, apparently they're they're going back to the planet because there's something there. So uh, there's some kind of mystery at the core of this. And also uh, Luke discovers the story of Jin Urso and uh, what hap- what we saw happened in Rogue One uh, that the author Gillian says, um, though that we get people like Luke discovering everything that allowed him to get into a position to destroy the Death Star. He finds out that Jyn Erso and all the people who sacrificed their lives to give him the chance to be a hero. You can imagine that's going to uh, hit Luke hard. Um, so, I don't know. Sounds great to me. I'm already in all in on the Star Wars comics. Have you have you read any of the Star Wars comics? Uh, I have not. I've read a lot about them, uh, you know, having to write about uh, their <laughs> plot points and stuff for the site. But I have not actually like dived in and or dove in and uh, and really sort of got into that that side of the world. I do love the the connections, though. I think that's just a really cool thing that Lucasfilm is doing where it's like it's not necessarily um, well, it's not necessary for uh, everyone's understanding of the movies, the stuff that happens in these comics. But if you choose to if you want to spend more time in those worlds it's cool that they're you know drawing these parallels and and sort of um crisscrossing storylines and stuff um making explicit connections between movies that you never really thought would be referenced um yeah i think that's really awesome yeah i think i i think it comes down to three things for me there's cool moments that we never got to see like we never got to see darth vader realize that the person that blew up the death star was Luke Skywalker, his son. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that we get to see in the comics. And moments like those make the comics uh, worth reading. Uh, there's a lot of fan service. You know, there's Luke Skywalker coming face to face with Boba Fett. And, uh, you know, he, sand gets thrown in someone's eyes so he doesn't see him. So it makes sense when he first sees him the first time. You know, it, it's oh, a lot wow. of like yeah. uh, BS kind of stuff like that. Uh, but uh, and also um, as much as I like this, this is kind of cool. It does... I kind of hate how the Star Wars world is retconning everything in. Like, it's kind of weird that Luke is discovering the story of Jin Erso, you know, uh, months after the 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 the, uh, the attack on the Death Star. Like, you think when he was going to the Death Star, at some point he would have been told about right. this group that got the plans and 
whatever. Yeah. Um, but yes, it, it's, it's, it's cool. I highly recommend them. At least, uh, the, the initial Star Wars series. Uh, you can check that out. Uh, uh, I think Marvel publishes them. You can see them on Comicsology. That's where I subscribe to them. Uh, and that does it for the news. Ben, where can we find more of your work? You can find me at slashfilm.com and on Twitter at Ben Pears. In our feature presentation, Huai Tran Bui joins me to talk about her visit to Pixar to learn about their new film, Coco. HT, how's it going? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, so th- this is your first time visiting Pixar. I've been there quite a bit. So uh, not that the magic has worn off on me because every time I'm, I go there, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. But what what is it like going to Pixar Studios in Emeryville, California? It is, um, it's just magical. So this is not only my first time visiting Pixar, but my first time doing a sort of trip for a film related uh, business trip. So this was just doubly exciting for me. Um, And just going into Pixar Studios and you're like entering this whole world that is built around all of their most iconic and famous films. And you go in and like, it's basically a campus, uh, very much like a Silicon Valley type of um, workplace. But then you have this huge uh, sculpture of Luxo, Luxo Jr. from the their first short and their uh, title sequence as well. And there's just all these sculptures you see of uh, a Lego sculpture of Buzz and Woody from Toy Story, a big sculpture of The Incredibles, which you get to pose next to, and uh, the Pixar um PR people were very uh, lenient with allowing us just fan boy and fan girl <laughs> about everything there. There's like, yeah, just leave them 10 minutes to take pictures and selfies and brag at their Pixar. And it's really cool because they have um they have a little glass case at the front of the building that we they took us in that has all of their awards. Um, actually, it, I don't think it's even all their say awards. It's a huge glass case. It's like. I don't know how long, like 15 feet long, filled it, with awards. It is a big glass case, but I don't even think that is the entirety of their collection. I'm pretty sure they were like, oh, well, let's put it at the front of the building, but let's be humble and not include everything. So it's their way of showing <laughs> off, but stepping back at the same time. And it was really cool. That was the closest I've ever been to an Oscar. So I got to put my finger close to it <laughs> but yeah it was amazing it was magical um i went to the pixar uh gift store too which unfortunately didn't have a lot of things that uh, i really wanted like i there's some cool t-shirts that i saw people who had gone there before had and i wanted one of those but there yeah, was a lot of just cars three stuff yeah a lot of things happen to be around what the the last film that they released are but the pixar store is usually incredible because it, half the stuff there is only stuff you can buy at pixar yeah. Um, like a few years ago, I bought this, uh, it's a, I don't know how you describe it. It's a, a it's the Pixar logo with Luxo uh-huh. in the Pixar logo and you press a button and Luxo jumps around. It, it's, you know, I should put, post a video in the show notes or something for people to see it, but it's like this toy, but it's like the most elaborate, like thing for a studio to just produce for their gift shop. And I don't <laughs> think they still have it anymore, but, uh. But the stuff there is incredible. Um, you didn't buy anything? I bought a postcard of Buzz and Woody for um, one of my best friends. So I'm going to send that to her. I think it's really funny that they have a whole uh, clothesline of John Lasseter Hawaiian shirts. 
<laughs> so I thought that was hilarious. I had no idea that this line existed until um, someone who was on the uh, junket with me was like, yeah, you should buy one of the um, John Lasseter Hawaiian shirts. I'm like, what? That's a thing. So they, 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 they sell them at them. D23 each year. And honestly, they actually sell out. And the only place you can actually get them is at that gift shop uh, now. So I think if you bought one, you could probably sell it on eBay. But not, <laughs> not that you would do that. Let's move on to Coco. Coco is their latest film from director Lee Unkrich, who did Toy Story 3. And it's, uh, what, what do we know about Coco? So Coco is a movie set in Mexico, set on the Day of the Dead. It actually only takes place in that one day and night. Uh, so it has a really short sort of, um, it's mostly done in real time. And it's about this boy, Miguel, who has a passion for music and wants everything just to be a, a musician like his idol, Ernesto de la Cruz. But his family uh, is very adamant against music. They ban music in their household and want him to become a shoemaker. So after a series of rash decisions. And, and, and that being, always works in getting someone, yes. getting a kid to stop. So Yeah, it's like, you know, have you not watched Footloose? But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, after a series of rash, rash decisions, he ends up stuck in the land of the dead, uh, which is open once a year during the Day of the Dead, in which all the ancestors from um, this town and like everywhere in Mexico cross over and uh, pay like are able to visit their loved ones and families who are still living, uh, but they don't see them. But it's a, a sort of spiritual thing, um, and it's uh, based on the actual. Uh, traditions and practices that are um, done in Mexico on the Day of the Dead. So it was. Um, you saw first... you saw the first thirty minutes at Pixar, right? Mm -hmm. They showed us the first thirty minutes. Um, about the first twenty minutes of it was uh, fully done. Like the last uh, ten or fifteen was uh, in sketches and not completely finished yet. And they had some stock music too, they which they had not um, finished composing yet. Uh, but it was incredibly charming. I was smiling the entire time. I, I remember being a little worried going in because um, Coco is uh, definitively about this Mexican heritage and about like this Mexican family. And while they had an all Latino cast, it was um, a lot of there were a lot of uh, white uh, people who and people who are not Latino uh, working on this film. And there's often problems like issues of cultural sensitivity when these kind of things come around. Uh, although director uh, Co Adrian Molina was brought on as co-director a little bit later on in the project. He's a Mexican-American. But they um, watching the film and seeing uh, the process that they described to us during the junket, they really put their all into uh, into researching the customs and the traditions of Mexico and making sure they do right by them. I do not know um, very closely what Dia de, the, the Day of the Dead um, really encompasses, but it did feel really authentic to me while I was watching it. And even as someone who was not Mexican, I really felt this connection uh, as a person of color, just seeing this tradition playing out uh, on like this anime in this animated film for like this mainstream yeah. audience. And um, it actually, it struck me that uh, the traditions I celebrate as a Vietnamese American, um, we have this tradition called Zolt, which is this similar uh, memorial 
to our ancestors that we do on the anniversary of their deaths. We don't do like a single day for it like uh, Mexico does, but it's incredibly similar. We have the altar, we have um, their favorite foods that we put up on the altar on there with photographs. So I think that Coco, it might not have been um, purposefully, but it really struck a universal and authentic chord with me. And I think that it will do that for many um, immigrants and people of color who watch it. Yeah, well, Disney's really good at that. And they're really good at researching, uh, obviously, with Moana. They have that, uh, the Polynesian uh, Culture Trust, I think it was called. Um, And, uh, you know, I mean, maybe your culture (laughs) will be be next because Pixar, you know, they did uh, some... They did a short film. Uh, mm-hmm. What was that called? Uh, uh, something Sanji's Super Team. Yes, Sanjay's yeah, Super Sanjay's, Team. Yeah, mm-hmm. Super Team, uh, uh, Moana, this. And I, I feel like all of those do a great job of what you're saying, Yeah, exposing you to that culture, but making it feel so general and so y- you connect with it, even yeah. if you are not of those races or of those cultures, rather. I agree. I really appreciated that. And um, I didn't even go into like the content of the movie, but uh, I won't go into spoilers. Uh, the The dog, the animal sidekick, Dante, is definitely, definitely a scene stealer. He is just hilarious with his physical gags. He has this huge long tongue that's just hanging out and lolling around the entire time. Uh, Gail Garcia Bernal's character is also going to be a scene stealer. He plays this uh, skeleton named Hector, who's kind of like this ragamuffin trickster character who uh, Miguel befriends in the Land of the Dead and who he teams up with in order to uh, go on this mission to find his idol, Ernesto de la Cruz, who he thinks will help him get back to the Land of the Living. Uh, So I won't go into any more spoilers spoilers than that. Um, I only saw like five minutes of Gail Garcia Bernal's character um, on screen, but I completely fell in love with him. That's not just because I'm biased and I'm in love with him <laughs> as an actor. So I'm very excited for this film. And, uh, you know, this is Pixar's first film with like, you know, I mean, it's going to be a skeleton cast mm-hmm. and it's a kid's movie. Uh, what are the troubles about, you, you know, with bringing skeletons to life in a children's tale? Yeah, so they talked a little bit about this during the junket. Um, I remember watching uh, A Nightmare Before Christmas and being terrified as a kid, not being able to watch it until recently. And they did try to sort of uh, make a realistic depiction of skeletons at the same time as making them um, exhibit the emotions that a human can exhibit. And uh, just by either their walk or their gait, or they put them in like wigs and put face paint on them to mimic the uh, eyebrows and facial hair and everything. And they really try to uh, put a lot of emotion into these skeletons faces, which is hard to do. Um, And um, a lot of it does deal with uh, close ups of like these skeletons faces. Miguel, um, as he stays longer in the day of the dead in the land of the dead does turn more to a skeleton. So you have to have that sort of like connection with him, even as he's losing like the emotion in his face. Um, but they said that it's important that the characters themselves in the film don't exhibit any like fear of the skeletons. And that's what helps the audience not have any fear of them. So Miguel, especially as the protagonist, when he's not scared of the skeletons, then it helps ease the audience along. You know, every time I'm at Pixar, and this shouldn't surprise me, but it does, is how much they think into every little detail that you wouldn't even think would be something that they, like, 
spend time on, but they've mm-hmm. obviously spent, you know, weeks and months on every little possible detail. And just that, um, you talked about in your piece, uh, how Coco was influenced by John Wick, Spirited Away, and some Mexican history. We talked about mm-hmm. the Mexican history aspect of that. But yes. how about John Wick and Spirited Away? So John Wick was actually kind of a throwaway thing, but I thought it was so funny that they used John Wick as a reference for the lighting in the film that I had to include it. So um, they talked about how the land of the dead was is permanently in nightfall. So it's always dark. So they have to really illuminate it with all sorts of bright and intense colors. And often this ends up being very neon and very intense, very much like the color palette that we see of John Wick. So John Wick was one of the films which they referenced to uh, create this really vibrant color palette to make it seem like it was this place that was filled with the undead or the dead uh, was actually so much more alive than even the land of the living. Um, at some so at some point, they um, they were even afraid that like it would make the land of the living seem kind of washed out just because everything mm-hmm. was so vibrant in the land of the dead. Um, so I thought, yeah, it definitely you can see shades of John Wick in the lighting of the film just because like there's a lot of purple, a lot of reds, I, blues. I, I can definitely see that just from the trailers. And what mm-hmm. about? I mean, you're a big, a big Miyazaki fan. What about Spirited yes. Away? Oh, I definitely saw um, even the trailers, just like the Spirited Away and Studio Ghibli vibes that I saw from it. Like the story itself is very similar to Spirited Away in which this um, character gets stuck in this otherworldly, uh, literal otherworld, uh, usually somewhere, that, something that's populated by spirits or the um, the dead like Miguel is here. And um, it kind of leads into the sort of Alice in Wonderland type trip in which they go further and further down the rabbit hole. And Spirited Away is similar to that. Also, just the look of it. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, darkness in Spirited Away too, but it's also really illuminated by these lanterns and lights. And there's also at one point where the the um, bathhouse that she's staying at gets uh, surrounded by these floods of water, which is similar to what the City of the Dead. They're all like isolated uh, with these um, air these uh pools of water just like surrounding them uh, um, did, so I did, felt did like, they mention that as an influence for that or you're just taking so that I, away i asked i asked them and they're like yeah we have we um we did reference that when we were like just starting the film and we wanted to take away some of the spirituality of miyazaki films and ghibli films so i was like okay yeah. i got you um <laughs> and also there's a lot of there's actually a steampunk vibe in some of the city of the dead which i thought was really fascinating which did remind me of a housing castle as well yeah. and how just precarious the towers of all the houses that the uh people who live in the city of the dead live in um it's like just houses stacked on stack stacked on top of each other and stacked on top of each other and they just kind of become this unwieldy tower that looks very steampunky because it's all these different times and periods uh that these houses are from so it was fascinating it's a it's a really interesting blend of just like history and modernism for sure and uh john lasseter is obviously a big fan of miyazaki he you know miyazaki's visited pixar and um Totoro was in Toy Story 3, I believe, because yes. of that relationship. So there is yeah. a, a relationship there. And uh, Disney also releases all the Miyazaki films uh, in yeah. with English dubs. Exactly. Uh, and um, the original Toy Story, the flying scene uh, in which um, Buzz lifts uh, Woody up and uh, after they get 
um, they're at the end of the film when they're trying to uh, get reach the truck. Yeah. That scene was uh, influenced by the flying scene in uh, Spirited Away, I think, or Kiki's Delivery Service. I think it was Spirited Away. I remember oh. John Lasseter speaking about that. I didn't even remember. I, I've never heard of that. Um, mm-hmm. Well, HT, it was great to have you on here. You have a bunch of pieces on the site from this visit, and I think we're going to have more later too. some interviews. Yes. Uh, where can we find more of your work online? You can find me at SlashFilm.com. I'm on Twitter at HTranBui, and I have a podcast, the Millennial Falcon Podcast, on iTunes.